Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January the 30th, 2020. This is episode 2592 of the Survival Podcast. And we're going to kind of actually, in a, in a way, continue with what we talked about with our guest, Reed Richard, yesterday. It's going to be way different, but in the words of Tommy Chong... Right? From the old Cheech and Chong movies. It's the same but different, man. Right? Um, and that's interesting that I chose to put it that way because, you know, we kind of looked at Tommy Chong as a hippie. I call myself a redneck hippie duck farmer. And uh, one of my contacts, good friend on Facebook, said of yesterday's show, Jack got out-hippied. I'd never heard the term out-hippied, but I immediately conceded I was out-hippied yesterday. Um, I do consider myself a redneck hippie duck farmer, but I consider myself a hippie. Even though it's talking about the generation before mine in this song, there's a song um, called Old Hippie, right, by Bellamy Brothers. He's an old hippie, right? And there's actually a, a follow-up song to it called Old Hippie, the sequel. And it's about a young, uh, older man at that point who was part of the hippie generation of, like, the late 60s, but he was also drafted, went to Vietnam, uh, and is trying to figure out how to fit in the modern world. And he's let go a lot of his hippiness, but he's also held on to like the core values of you know peace and, and happiness and treating people well and things like that. And uh, that's the kind of hippie I see myself as. I'm a different generation hippie. Um, I'm a hippie out of time, I guess, because it seems like there's, there's modern hippies and there's old hippies, but there's not a lot of Gen X hippies. Gen X and hippie really didn't go together. And I don't really know that hippie's the right word. I think I, I use the word sometimes just for uh, for fun uh, and maybe a little bit of marketing. Um, what I really am is a person who is connected to the natural world. And in our materialistic world today, such people are often labeled hippie or something like that because they actually acknowledge that there are, that for instance, there's energy to living systems. Now, I don't get all psycho-spiritual with that. Um, I really don't. But it doesn't mean that I don't understand that there's energy in a living system. And I don't think that's even hard to prove. I think that if you took a person and you brought them into blindfolded into a room full of unhappy people, like, I don't know, a school, everybody was quiet, so they had no idea where they were. And if you took that same person out into a forest that they could literally sense the difference in energy. When I used to work for Lockheed as a, uh, as a contractor, I have to say the Lockheed that I worked for had some of the happiest workforce people I've ever known. It probably helped that every other week was a four-day work week. That probably helped. It probably helped that people were paid well. There's a lot of reasons, but when you went into that place, you could tell most of the people that worked there were happy to work there. It wasn't the greatest job in the world or anything, but overall, it was pretty good. Working in telecom, there were things I did that you obviously can't be doing, like I can't be taking down the main circuit between like, you know, the, the, the core network and payroll 
at four o'clock on a Friday. It would get me killed, right? So I would go in if I had to take a circuit down like that, any circuit, but that would be a very you know good way to get killed uh, is to interfere with payroll, uh, especially by people who make weapons for a living. So I would go in on a weekend. And I'm flat out telling you when I walked into that facility on a weekend, I could tell there was hardly anybody there. The energy was different. So being in touch with that energy of, of life has has become something people call being a hippie. And I don't necessarily think that that is the right word for it, but whatever. I'm happy to be a redneck hippie duck farmer. Uh, I also kind of push that out as a conundrum. Uh, but I, what I wanted to do today was kind of go through a little bit more of this biophilic theory or biophilic approach Um And I didn't put it in the title today. I just called today's show Integrating Nature into Our Lives. Because I'm sure people look at biophilic. It's either some crazy hippie shit, right? Or it is uh, some kind of weird, you know, disease or something. Or it's, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, boring, myopic, scientific, topic about taxonomy or something it's none of those things it is simply the belief that and it's actually a hypothesis right and i find it preposterous that it's a hypothesis but the biophilic hypothesis according to science is simply that humans possess an innate tendency to seek connections with nature and other forms of life and again to me this the fact this is a hypothesis shows that Science is in many ways disconnected from reality, for the very reality it hopes to explain. If people were not, not naturally biophilic, then we wouldn't have a garden industry alone in America, just America, the, the, the value of the gardening industry, selling you plants and seeds and soil and all that stuff. $300 billion, billion with a B, $300 billion. The pet market... We love our pets. $60 billion a year Americans, just Americans, spend on their pets. If we didn't seek to bond with natural things in nature and connect with other forms of life, we wouldn't have zoos, parks, and arboreums in, like, every major city. Camping wouldn't be one of the most popular pastimes in America, nor would hunting or fishing. There'd be no Arbor Day Society. There'd be no permaculture movement. There wouldn't be a back-to-the-land movement mentality that just seems to pop up generation after generation after generation. Kind of ebbs out, but then you know the next generation is going back to the land. Um, there wouldn't be a YouTube channel on keeping tropical fish with over a million subscribers. And how about this? A YouTube tro channel that's about keeping ants. Yes, ants. 3.3 million subscribers, many of them children. Several people I know through the show and community have kids, especially homeschool kids. They love the Ants Canada channel. 3.3 million people tune into a YouTube channel to learn about ants. Old men like me would not remember Marlon Perkins so fondly. My now-grown son would not remember how he felt when he heard the crocodile hunter lost his life doing what he loved. No one would know the names Jacques Cousteau or Henry David Thoreau. There would not be thousands of songs about nature. Those would have never been written. National Geographic wouldn't exist. Parks like SeaWorld would not draw millions of visitors a year. I could go on, but I think you get the point. 
It's no hypothesis, which means an educated guess. It's not even a theory. A hypothesis is below theory in the scientific method, which I guess we don't teach in school anymore so that we don't actually question settled science when you actually know scientific methodology. But it's not a hypothesis. I don't even think it's a theory that humans seek to bond with natural systems. It's as much a scientific fact as anything could be. I think it's as bluntly as true as gravity. We may not know exactly what gravity is. There's a theory of gravity, but there are laws of gravity, one of which is you drop shit, it falls. Right? We know that. That's there. Nobody says, yeah, well, we're not sure it really falls. We're like, yeah, here it is. Boom. Do humans seek innately to bond with natural systems in nature? Of course we do. Our entire world is made up of just unlimited examples. The fish tanks in front of me. You have a 55-gallon fish tank with about 20 different plants that I care for in that one ecosystem that I built. Do you think I did that because it looks as, you know, it, 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 is, it, it is akin to a picture? Or does it actually matter to me that there are living beings in that tank that, that coexist and I, I care for them and they are here and they are part of my life because of that? This is, this is what we were talking about yesterday, but we talked about it from kind of a, a wandering journey standpoint. I want to talk about it from an everyday standpoint because the, the flat reality is most people are not going to live like our guest yesterday. They're not going to get a bicycle and a trailer and a bunch of instruments and travel across the country. Nothing wrong with it. I thought it was one of the coolest interviews I've ever done. Least anybody misunderstand me. I thought it was freaking awesome. I loved being out heavy. It was great. And a lot of people from this audience might be the kind of people to be like, you know what, that sounds pretty cool what he does. I'd like to go to Hawaii to his farm and live there for a week and experience life like that. But you're going to come home, you're going to go back to work so you can pay your bills. Even he's learning about that as he's a father now and becoming a father for a second time. And, hey, you got to pay for this shit. Like, you can't just live as a vagabond all the time if you want certain things in your life. You can, but if you want certain things in your life, then you have to you have to... You have to figure out how to integrate things together. That's what I want to talk about today, this larger-scale integration, bringing more nature into our lives without necessarily becoming a redneck hippie duck farmer, maybe as a homesteader, maybe just into an office space. And our quote of the day lines up with this, and it's from Frank Lloyd Wright. And I selected that because Frank Lloyd Wright predates this this study of thought we call biophilia. He's, he's prior to it. I think he died in the 50s. 52, 56, 59, one of those. Didn't make it to the 60s. I'm almost 100% sure of that. So he's been checked out for a long time. Pre-Vietnam War, already gone. But if I went around and randomly asked Americans, just on the street, name an architect. Name an architect. There is a shitload of Americans that I swear to God couldn't name one, or they would say like their Uncle Frank or somebody in their family. Like, But you say name an architect that's not related to you or you don't know by personal relationship, just a, a general. There'd be a bunch of people, I, I don't know, we don't, we don't teach that in school. But I think the majority of people who could name one that they didn't personally know would say Frank Lloyd Wright. His architecture is that iconic. And to the point to even today, when you watch like real estate TV shows or something, if somebody has a, a house 
that was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, boy, you know about it when they go to sell it. And if it's not designed by him, but it's built in his style, that's right up front. So very, very well-known architect. And he worked primarily with creating both exterior and interior design into the architecture, but making the person in the home feel as though they were in the entire area, not walled off. That, that, that classic window-to-ceiling, floor-to-ceiling windows that met in the corner type thing. So you felt as though you were outside even when you were inside, or that the outside was inside with you. This is what he said about nature. Study nature. Love nature. Stay close to nature. It will never fail you. So that's our quote of the day as we lead off today. So let me kind of start out with just why I think we are a biophilic species, which, again, is just a fancy word for saying a, a, a species that seeks to bond with other species in nature. And, and I kind of covered it there in the intro that you just look at how we live. You know, we, you just look at how we live and you realize we seek to bring natural living things into our lives. And even when we can't, then we seek to bring something that looks like a natural living thing. So you go to an office space, you know, especially, you know, one that's not where they're just barely trying to survive, something that's, you know, well-run operational office space. You're probably either going to see living plants somewhere in that office space, and there's going to be, like, it's so important that they be there, there's probably a company that comes and takes care of them. And there'll be plants that specifically can live under office lighting and indoors, and they might even wax their leaves and trim and, and what have you, and they only need to be watered once a week or something like that. But you'll, you'll see that, or you'll see artificial plants, because we've got to do something that makes this place look a little better. Now, there's a million things we could do. We could put pictures on the wall. Why plants? You know, that's, that's just one example of this compulsion that we have. And I think that part of our problem is we have attempted to isolate ourselves from nature while craving nature. This is one of the, one of the real reasons we mismanage our lands in our country. And I'm not just talking about agriculture, I'm talking about public lands, etc. We have this belief that wilderness is to be untouched. Not understanding that I'm as native to this planet as an elk is. I'm as native to this planet as a grizzly bear is. I'm as native to this planet as a deer is. And a mouse is as native to this planet as I am. An amoeba. There is no life we know of that's not native to this world. That doesn't mean that there's no, you know, extraterrestrial life out there of some sort somewhere. I think it's massively improbable that that's the case. When you look at the not the number of planets in our galaxy, but the number of galaxies in the known universe, it's ridiculous that there's not something else out there. But we don't know about it. We can't see it. We can't look at it. All life that we know of is native to this world. And therefore, we are part of this world as part of the natural components of it. That doesn't mean that we can't be destructive, but so can animals. Elephants in an unbalanced system can literally starve themselves to death by overgrazing and causing erosion. The difference is we have the capacity to comprehend what we're doing 
And yet we tend to do it anyway and still cause massive destruction because we want what we want now. I'm not so sure some of these other animals, if they had that capacity, wouldn't be guilty of the same wrongdoing as we are often because it's also innate that we want what we want. And as bad as some of this is, even the bad proves that we crave nature. Look at one of the worst things for ecology in the entire country. In some ways, you could probably make a case that it's worse than agriculture as far as its impact with fertilizers and, and runoff and excessive energy use, etc. Excessive water use, you name it. The lawn. The lawn is a wholly unnatural thing. There are no lawns in nature. There's meadows in nature. There's forests, there's edges, there's thickets, there's savannas. There's mangrove swamps. There is no lawn in nature. It doesn't exist. There's no place you go in nature and you look and it's a green field and everything is cut to the same height. And it's one species. And if something grows like a dandelion, some critter runs out, pulls it out of the ground, gets rid of it, and maintains it that way naturally. And human beings have only done that for a couple hundred years, if that. Even in the early 1900s, um, the average lawn, even though it was maintained a lot like it is today, was a polyculture meadow that, that, that primarily consisted of clover. When I grew up in Pennsylvania as a kid, I'm not that old, most lawns, even in like textbook suburbia, contained clover. No one tried to eradicate the clover. They understood that it was good for the lawn. Right? But even our modern lawns of Bermuda grass or Raleigh St. Augustine or whatever, if what we really want is just a absolute, you know, uniformity, why don't we just like kill everything and put down gravel like they do out in Arizona for xeroscaping? Where the first thing that you have to do is xeroscape the lawn and make it maintenance free is put in, you know, cacti and succulents and things that will grow there that are alive. Why do they do that? Well, they just put down the gravel and go, okay, we're good. Well, you know, kids got to play, have a space or whatever. Well, you got plenty of people that don't have no kids. You got neighborhoods with HOAs that forbid children that have manicured lawns. You know, why doesn't everybody put down AstroTurf then? You never have to take care of it, hose it off about once every two months. Why do we want grass? And then why wouldn't we put something down that's synthetic Do we make it look like the more it looks like living grass, the happier we are? Because inside ourselves, we know we want a natural thing in our lives. So even lawns, as bad as they are, they prove that we are a nature-seeking species. How about our obsession with pets and livestock, right? So let's start with pets because it's a little more universal, I think, than livestock. Americans love their dogs and their cats, and a lot of people that don't have a cat or a dog have some sort of a pet anyway. You know, a lot of kids, if mom and dad won't let them have a dog or a cat, and mom and dad are thinking they're not going to take care of it, I don't have time to take care of it, I don't have money to take care of it. Those things live 12, 20 years. You know, they have a gerbil or a goldfish or something that doesn't live that long so that when the kid gets bored with it, it's not long until it's gone anyway. But yet, they want something. 
And then when we move into the world of homesteading, everybody thinks of a garden, and we'll get to that. But I, I know very few people that get into homesteading that don't try to add some form of livestock. You know, for me, I call myself a redneck hippie duck farmer. It's become ducks. But I'm going to tell you something about ducks. You can't watch a group of ducks line up the way they do and march across a yard and not smile. You can't do it. It's impossible. I've had people here and watched them. People are like, oh, you got ducks. And they're not even that interested in the fact that you have ducks. But all of a sudden it's dinner time and everybody comes marching in a row and you look at that person's face and they look like a little freaking kid getting a present. Maybe not the best thing they got on Christmas, but like something better than socks. Or we do quail or whatever. And a lot of times we want that livestock to produce food for us. Well, there is perfectly decent food available at the store. It's not the best quality in some cases. In some cases, if you're willing to pay for it, you can get damn good quality at the store or for somebody down the road that's a local producer or whatever. Why do we feel this compulsion to have a chicken and then be able to eat an egg out of our backyard? Could it be because we know that animal husbandry is innately part of what we are, that we should be connected to what we eat? Whether it's quail or chickens or ducks or goats or sheep or cattle or pigs or whatever it is, rabbits. As soon as a person moves toward feeding themselves, they start thinking about animal life. And they also start thinking about how do I now connect the animal system to the vegetable system. And we're either collecting rabbit manure or we're using chickens to compost leftovers. And somewhere or another, we're actually creating this, this looped, closed loop nutrient recycling system. And we've made a lot of teaching people how to do it and call it permaculture or biodynamic or whatever, you know, organic, all that, blah, 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 blah. Mankind has been doing this for as long as we have records of what mankind has been doing. We quickly figured out the dog sh or the, 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 the animal shit makes the plant grow better. And then we developed systems that made that work better than just throwing it on there. And entire professions were built on it. We call them today farmers and horticulturists. We have entire universities dedicated to the study of agriculture. My niece-slash-goddaughter is going to one right now, hoping to become a veterinarian. Livestock, pets... We have an obsession with that. You want to see people root for something in a movie? You can have a movie. People are getting killed left and right. The movie writers keying in on this put a dog in the movie. And they write a scene where the dog's in jeopardy. You root... 20 people just got killed. Remember Independence Day, the first one, right? With Will Smith? People are wiped out. Everywhere. Building's blown up. The stupid one's on the roof. It's so pretty. Hold the thing up. And and it goes to, to to Atlanta. That's the thing I've dropped forever, and you guys never pick up on it. So the the guy that works for Jeff Blowgroom sends his his, his aunt Edna to Atlanta. She gets blown up. Everybody's blown up. Lady and her kid and the dog are caught in a tunnel. Fires coming through the tunnel. The dog. <laughs> Why? 
Why do we have such a strong bond? I don't have an answer to why. I'm just pointing out that we do. And it all fits perfectly with the permaculture ethos that the forest is our teacher. The forest is indeed our teacher. And it's always been our teacher. We evolved as a species, best we can tell, in the forest and on the edges of the forest on the savannas. That's where humanity grew up. When we go into the forest, there is something in that that we feel, that we know on some level it's home. And anything that you want to teach a person that they actually need to survive can be taught in a forest, including trigonometry. I learned trigonometry, and what made it interesting was our teacher took us outside and showed us how to use trigonometry to figure out how tall a tree was by using a, 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 a thing of water as a reflector and triangulating the distance to determine the height of a tree. So if you can learn trigonometry in a forest, what can you not learn in a forest? Biology, chemistry, even history. We can look at real history in a forest. You're going to tell me standing next to a tree that's over 2,000 years old, you could not conduct a lesson plan on the 2,000-year history of our, of, our civil, of our world? That looking at a secession in a forest, the multi-generational nature of a forest, you couldn't teach that. So I'm not even talking about the natural lessons that we need to survive. I'm talking about no matter what you come up with, the forest can be the teacher. The forest teaches us lessons of individuality and communalism. You have the lone hunting animal, and you have the communal animal that lives in a colony or an insect, like, oh, an ant. We, we, we learn and can learn everything from nature. Nature is the greatest teacher, and the greatest teacher in nature to me is the forest, because we seek this bond. Next, I want to talk about how we can bring more nature into our lives. I think our school system, I find our school system abundantly flawed. I also find that our school system, in some form similar to what it is, will be with us for a while longer. I do think it's going to begin to deconstruct itself over time, and that it will be drastically different than even 10 years than it is right now. I have no interest in saving it in its current form, I don't think a system that was designed in the 1800s to teach children to be obedient workers in factories has a place in 2020. But it is here. So we might as well do the best we can with it. Just so I'm not misunderstood as being on board with let's rah, 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 fix education in America. Because the best way to do that is to completely radically transform it into something different. But if we're going to have a place that our children... Spend, what, 180 days a year in? 100 and something like that? 80 days a year? From the time that they're 5 to the time that they're 18, 19 years old, and in many cases go on to higher education and are there till they're 22, 24 years old or older? If we're going to have a place like that and claim that it's a place for learning and it's a place where people go to become what we refer to as productive members of society. Cutting nature out of that 
doesn't make any sense to me. And isolating nature to a single subject, like science, or maybe even a little bit with geology, which is a science, okay, it, it, it doesn't make any sense either. The schools in, in other countries that, you know, grow gardens and have the children actually harvest food and they rotate through so that at some point they're actually harvesting and cooking food for their other students. That's not just a life skill to me. That's also a connection to nature. There shouldn't be a class for the money we put into this damn system, which is astronomical, the amount of money that's poured into education in this country. There shouldn't be a classroom in America without plants in it and without living things in it that those that the children care for. And it could be done very inexpensively. If, if, if parents were reached out to, I think most schools, parents would provide things like potted plants and stuff. And the kids should learn to care for those things. And when something gets sick or dies and it doesn't work, they should learn why it failed. And they should have a vested connection to that thing. Parks and you know, play areas in schools should be full of trees. Trees and boulders and various different plants, not just grass and dirt. And, you know, like a, a gravel pit or a concrete court. The, 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 the play areas in our school should be adventurous. In our homes, the, that's, that's the easy one because it's up to us. If you live in a place right now and you like hearing about all this stuff, but you're like, I, I really just can't do it yet. I don't have space. Do something. I don't care if it's a freaking snake plant or what they call a corn plant that's not really corn, like tropicals that can handle the low light conditions or you know, find a sunny window. Get some really cool piece of wood and attach some air plants to it. Learn about air plants and how they work and how they multiply, how to take care of them. Some of them will die. They can be real finicky. They're supposed to be easy. Yeah, okay. You'll kill some. Why? Why did this one live and this one die? Bring nature into your life. Some sort of interaction. Not just every weekend I take a walk in the park. That's great. You should do that. Or every day I take a walk around the grounds. And maybe you live in a place where it's like... Where I grew up in Florida before we moved to Pennsylvania. The apartment complex I grew in was up in was like in a swamp. There were trees and bushes and shrubs and clumps of woods everywhere that we played in. Maybe that's why, in spite of the fact that I'm kind of weird, I'm also kind of normal, uh, despite having kind of a crazy life story, because I had at least that. So even if you have that, you know, I, I remember, like, you can bring this in. T teachers, you can make a difference in, in kids' lives with very small things. Back when I was in, like, first grade, a teacher brought a pomegranate to school. I had never seen a pomegranate. Freaking Ukrainians, we eat pierogies. What the hell's a pomegranate? And she took the pomegranate. I mean, what did this pomegranate cost? 50 cents back then? If that? Call it a dollar today? One pomegranate. She, she showed us how it opened up and all the little berries in it. And then, you know, there's 25 kids in a class, so everybody got a couple little pomegranate berries, and we ate the pomegranate berries. And she talked about where the pomegranates came from and how they grow. And in Florida, we can even grow pomegranates. And I remember I went home to my apartment... And I looked on the wall outside where I lived, there was this bush. 
And it was like I never really even noticed it. It's just a bush. And I look, and hanging on the bush is a pomegranate. And I was like, holy crap, we have pomegranates. I tell my dad, he's like, yeah, whatever. My mom, nah, pomegranates, it's a pomegranate. So I, I look at them and I figure out, hey, these are not ripe yet. But I know what they look like when they're ripe now. So now I'm excited. I'm going to eat pomegranates. I start going all around the apartment complex. Turns out there's like pomegranates everywhere. Nobody knows. Nobody eats them. Nobody pays attention. So as they come ripe, I'm eating pomegranates like crazy. And that starts me wondering, like, well, what else is here? And I realize there's like 12 throughout. This is a huge apartment complex. There were like 12 trees throughout the apartment complex. There were various forms of plums. And, I, you know, as a kid, I'm climbing these trees and picking plums and stuff like that. That was learning. That's a part of why I can get on and do a show like this, that I grew up with that in my life. Bring more of it into your home, your school. We need to bring more of nature into our workplaces. I mean, I challenge anybody out there who works for any employer with any size to it to start looking around and saying, is there a place there could be a employee garden or an employee aquaponics area or an employee greenhouse where some food can be grown and some natural things can be grown? Even if you don't focus on food, people love plants. What if it's just like a plant area where people can go for a break? And it's not just the sterile, landscaped, perfectly edged. Like where I worked in Frisco right before I quit to do this full time, we had a nice office park. We had a nice building that we were in. We were a tenant there. I really couldn't change any of this. We, we leased a floor. And there was a pond in, in the back of the building. Pretty good-sized pond. I would say like half acre with a bridge across it and a path around it and all. And it was such an attempt to be natural, but it failed so miserably. There weren't many trees of size, so there was almost no shade. So it's Texas, it's August, lunch break, I'm going to walk around the pond. You, you, you smell like stink by the time you're done with that. It's cool enough that you can actually be out there and try to enjoy it. Bah! Here goes the guy with the leaf blower. And nah, the edger and blam, wham, spray, spray. Like, hold, there, there's nothing natural about this. But now I look back and go, there was a roof on that building. It did have access. It was flat. Who knows what could be done on that rooftop? If we talked to the building owner. And they would listen to us because we gave them a shitload of money every month. That's just one example. And something like that is kind of a little retreat plant area. That can be set up to where plants can be propagated. And then, well, why not, you know, employees who would like one can go get a rhododendron or whatever from the plant propagation, whatever. Or whatever it is called. But we can bring more nature into our workplaces. Plants, fish tanks, etc., whatever. And here's a, a weird thought. I recently did a post about the space program, and I recently talked about the space program here. And son of a bitch, if the very day I did it, I didn't learn something very... It makes me unhappy. Um, we were on track to be back on the moon by 2024. 
have a, a significant number of moon missions, and that would be part of the, the Moon to Mars program. And then, you know, hopefully we have people going to Mars in the 2030s and establishing um, a gateway station that orbits the moon and a permanent presence on the moon, which is not people permanently moving to the moon. What the, the meaning of that permanent presence was is to put the infrastructure in place necessary that people can go to the moon frequently and have resources there and have systems that begin to use the natural resources of the moon to create those things. And the very day that I talked about this and said that the government should be making more about it, um, it came out that the latest proposed legislation uh, to come out pushes back on the 2024 date to 2028 and seriously curtails what would be done on the moon at, under the, the auspice that it's accelerating the journey to Mars, which it doesn't do and probably will actually delay. We're running away from the pioneer spirit yet again. It's just, it's sad. But I think sooner or later, whether it be, you know, state-sponsored government, and there's some state narcissistic behavior in there, as there always is, with less dependence on private industry, which was being integrated pretty well with this, uh, whether it's the state, whether it is the state and industry working together, or whether it is private industry just saying, you know, what the hell with this? We're done waiting. There's an opportunity here. We're doing it. We are going to be explorers of outer space. And what I said about it when I was talking about the, the first plan, the one I like better, was some people say, why bother? Why go into space until we learn how to take care of our own planet? And I feel that the more people that go into space and actually live there for significant periods of time, the more we will appreciate our planet, the more we will understand our planet. When I was in high school, I had to take Spanish because I thought I might go to college. So I didn't really like taking Spanish, and I didn't really like the way my Spanish teacher taught. I didn't think he was a great teacher, but I liked him. I, I didn't have a personal problem with him. And I was he was a guy I was able to talk to. And I remember one day I said, uh, I don't even understand why I have to take Spanish or German or anything. I said, it's not about Spanish. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, I, I really don't want to take this class. But what I'm told is that if I ever try to get into college and I don't have a couple years of a foreign language, it'll make it a lot harder to get into school. And he said, well... Why doesn't that make sense to you? I said, well, what if I wanted to get a degree in, I, I don't know, like something about animals or, you know, uh, something like uh, marketing or something like that or business? What does it matter if I speak Spanish? And, and if it actually did, like, why do they, why does it any language? Why wouldn't they be like, well, you have to have one of these languages? They don't care. They just want two years in a foreign language. And he said, well, the reason is that you will never fully understand your own language until you study a second one. And when you study a second language and truly develop an understanding of it, and then you come back to your own language, you'll understand your own language and its structure better. I didn't necessarily believe, okay, yeah, whatever, blah, whatever gets me through, fine. I'll go over here and pretend to study while I sleep. Um, but as I got older and I started writing, I realized how, how accurate that claim was. That because, and it wasn't so much what I learned in school, it was living in Panama and Honduras for two years and really then taking that 
space that I had from taking it in school and not really learning very well because I didn't care. But I had enough of it that I, I rapidly became at least reasonably fluent in conversational Spanish. And when I started writing again, what form of this verb or this, you know, do we use or this, you know, pronoun or whatever? Like, oh, that's why that matters, even though the rules are different. And I think that when it comes to appreciating nature, leaving this planet, existing in the isolation of space, which is there's nothing that compares to that level of isolation on planet, and returning to it, we can't help but have a different understanding of it. So I think that space exploration may put us more deeply in touch with the concept, even for those of us that never go. The more we see in the heroic nature of what needs to be done to keep people alive in long duration on a distant world with no biology native to it, the more we might appreciate how easy it is to do here. Because it's actually pretty easy to live here. We've managed to do it for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, somehow. And that's only because it's Earth, as dangerous as some of our places are, is, is the most forgiving environment we know of anyway, because of the life that we coexist with. We owe everything to the life we coexist with. You know, I've, 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 I can't remember who said it, but somebody said something, we owe all life on Earth to the fact that it rains in a few inches of topsoil. Uh, the topsoil doesn't do shit. You take all the biology out of that topsoil, you make it just dirt, and it cannot sustain life. We owe our life as much to the soil and the rain as we do to the organisms that inhabit that la layer of soil. And to the, the life forms that grow and die and give their bodies back to it. And the fungi that consume the tree that falls, that builds the soil. We owe all life to that. And I think, again, space may put us more in touch with that. Here's some things that we do as homesteaders. Because I think most of us are homesteaders on some levels. And they show how connected we are. We'll start out with that. Soil-based gardening. When we grow things in the ground... We are not growing plants. We are, we are feeding soil organisms. The soil organisms and the soil grow the plants, and we consume the plants. We might put the seed or the baby plant into the ground. We may judge how good the job we're doing of caring for the soil is based on the growth pattern of the plant. But we don't grow that plant. We don't grow that plant. The life force in that plant and the life forms that coexist with that plant grow the plant. We observe it. We initiate the growth by the selective way in which we disturb the soil, by the way that we eliminate that plant's competition, by the way that we fuel the critters in the soil. But they grow the plant. The plant puts its roots into the soil. And it says, I need, you know, selenium. And it makes a thing called an exudate on its roots. It's a little globule. It's basically a little sugar. It's a little cookie, a little candy. But that plant has enough innate intelligence that it makes the cookie or the candy that a very specific soil organism 
wants to consume. And that soil organism manages somehow to migrate through that soil web to that root to eat that exudate and poops. And in that poop is the tiniest, tiniest micro speck of selenium that that plant actually requires. It doesn't need a lot, but it needs some. And it feeds on it. We didn't do that. We might help create the environment for that to happen, but we didn't do that. It is a misnomer to say that we grow plants. We don't grow plants. We are horticulturists, not horticulturists. We help the culture of plants when we do soil-based gardening. What about like something so many of us love to do? Wilderness adventure, camping, hiking, etc. Ah, so we can get away. Well, we can get away to a lot of places. And even if you think about it, when we don't get away to go wilderness hiking or camping, like what are the primary places people go when they go on vacation? I mean, I guess some people like to go to big cities like New York and go to museums and the art, and then the art is usually of something natural. But if we take that, I mean, don't most people, when they think about going away on vacation, they go, like, where? The beach? <laughs> All right? Surrounded by wildlife and nature. Parks, what have you. But, yeah, wilderness adventuring, camping, hiking, etc. That is our quest to be back in what we really are as a species. Our species is a hunter-gatherer scavenger. That's what we are. We are hunter-gatherer scavengers. I've heard the case made, even by people I really like, like Alan Savory, that we are just a scavenger. That we're not a hunter. And his way of explaining that was, well, go run down a deer and try to bite it in the back of the neck, and you'll find out you're not a hunter. Only our technology has made us able to kill a deer. We evolved as scavengers. Since we picked up a rock and figured out how to hit something with it, we started hunting. There's plenty of things we can kill other than deer. We are hunters. We are gatherers. We are scavengers. As a species, as we began to evolve, we figured out, hey, the lions killed the wildebeest. They've eaten most of it. At this point, if we all run out and yell and wave big sticks, they'll back off. We could take the little bit that's left. They're willing to give it up now. Break those bones open and get that marrow out. We figured out eventually how to use fire. But that's what we are. There's nothing natural about going to Kroger's. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. But it's not nature. It's not in our nature to go to Kroger's. But it is in our nature to walk on a path in the wilderness And feel the ground be different because we are in a natural versus a fabricated system. There is, there is no doubt that walking in a forest is different than walking on a sidewalk. Further, that even walking in a field and walking in a forest are vastly different in the way that the earth feels under your feet. We go on these adventures. We go camping. We put a canoe or a kayak in a river because we want to bond with nature. Not because we're bored. We need something to do. Hell, they people get so wrapped up in video because they've made video games of fishing and hunting. 
We, when I was a kid, we had a video game called, what is it called? Pitfall. You're running through the jungle, swinging from freaking vines like Tarzan. Even when we go full on, completely into the artificial world, we bring nature back into it. What about foraging? I mean, that's, that's as, that's as basal to being a biophilic creature that you can get. Walking around, looking, observing with your eyes, your nose, and eventually your mouth, finding a plant and going, I recognize that plant, or that plant seems recognizable, and testing it in some way, and eventually figuring out, this thing is good for food, and then eating it. How, how much more can we say that we wish to bond with the natural world than that? Because when you take on foraging, part of it's a practical thing. Hey, this stuff's free food. But in a way, what you're saying is, even food I specifically grow for myself doesn't quite quell my desire to be the natural hunter-gatherer that I am. See, we were first hunters, gatherers, and scavengers. And then we figured out this thing that we gather, this berry. Some of the bushes have better berries. We could take care of those bushes right where they are. But then some other group of hairless monkeys might come take them away. So we could take the fruit, put it in the ground near our place that we live, where we can keep a better eye on it. And see if it grows. And it did. And we started to become horticultural. So then we went from being hunter-gatherer-scavenger to hunter-gatherer-scavenger-horticultural. And it was tens of thousands of years of that before we became agricultural. Agriculture is the culture of fields rather than the culture of plants. Agriculture is a product of the age of grain, which is at Best, at very best, 10,000 years old. A fraction of the time humans have been around. Foraging truly connects us with that. Fishing and hunting. Fishing and hunting are just forms of foraging to me. They're foraging for living things that can resist being taken. So a, a strawberry, you know, all it can do is not turn ripe until it benefits by you eating it. So it's ready for you to crap a seed out somewhere. That's its only defense. It can't stop you from, from, from getting it. A deer can run away. A fish can avoid the hook. If you try to catch it, it can swim faster than you can. It can evade you because it's slippery. You try to grab certain animals even that aren't that fast. They can bite you or stab you. you try to grab a porcupine. and You'll find out, right? They can fight back. We have to then use our cunning and our intellect to figure out how do we overpower this living thing. And in time, our intelligence tells us we can't take them all or there won't be any more. So fishing and hunting are a huge part of it. What about something that, you know, I've been attacked a little bit by the, uh, the uber, um, na nature crowd, I guess, or the uber natural crowd for doing lately? Hydroponics. I mean, if you look at hydroponics on the surface, it kind of seems very, scientific, very sterile. It's definitely something NASA's hugely interested in aquaponics, uh, hydroponics, uh, aeroponics. Aeroponics really big time for space exploration because it's probably the 
best adapted technology for doing uh, food production in space, which is entirely necessary for that goal to be met. But it has this almost, I know the word I'm looking for, technological laboratory type of quality to it. But it's probably the best way there is to grow food indoors or to even grow plants indoors. If you want to create a living wall of greenery, even if it's just ornamental mainly, and for purifying the air, an NFT hydro solution is a great way to go to keep keep that wall constantly growing. No dirt to make a mess inside. And the sound of moving water is also very natural and something humans desire. If that wasn't true, there would be no such thing as a fountain. We don't have a fountain because fountains are cool. We have a fountain because it sounds like a brook or a stream or a waterfall. That's why we have them. There's a fountain. I mentioned uh, architects. There's a, another famous architect. Probably might be one of the most likely for a number two name that people would know in America. Though if you've not at least sort of kind of paid attention to architecture, you probably wouldn't even know more than one if you're lucky. Uh, but I am Pei. I am Pei is an amazing... Something you know we're going to do a story on. People that came to this country and built amazing lives for themselves. Because I am Pei is a guy that before he came here thought, all I want is to go to America because if I go to America and I work hard, I can own a car. That's a true story. I can own a car. Someday I can own a car. The way you might dream of owning a home, he dreamed of owning a car. Any car. Not a Mercedes or a Ferrari. A car. The freedom that came with owning a car, to be able to get into it, go places. He designed a building in Dallas. It's it's an iconic building, if you've ever seen that Dallas skyline. It has these two slits of like slides that go up the side of it and then pointed. It's blue. It's glass. It's an amazing piece of architecture. Right outside of it, there's a fountain. And I remember one day sitting next to that fountain when I was in downtown Dallas. And I've never been happy in cities. I'm just not. And it's one of these fountains that shoots up from the ground. And it goes in patterns and waves back and forth. And there's all this noise, the city, people scurrying around, being too close to each other. Sat at this bench and just closed my eyes. And I listened to that water. And it became a stream. And I started realizing, like, This is designed. Whoever built this actually built these sounds and patterns into it. It would go from a stream. Then it was a pounding rainfall. Then it was a babbling, quiet brook. And then it was a waterfall. And then it was the ocean coming in and going out. And eventually, it started to repeat itself because there was only so many things that it could do. But I started to realize in every pattern, That if you didn't look at it, if you listened to it, they had designed into it a sound that mimicked nature. Now, that says a lot to me about how much we crave to be connected to nature. 
And I think we can use hydroponics, aquaponics, aquatic systems in general to bring nature into our homes. Um, you know, I would put that in with, like I said, my, I'm, I'm big on my fish tanks. I'm looking at these two gorgeous angelfish right now. Just, you could tell, the, especially my marble angel, he's so proud of himself. He's, he knows exactly what he is. He knows that in that tank, and he doesn't know it the way a human does. Don't, I'm not anamorphizing here. But he's very proud of himself. He knows he is a beautiful animal. And he just glides so effortlessly with those fins out, displaying his innate angelfishness. I can't do that without water. That animal can't live without an aquatic system to live in. And I think he's probably happier in this tank full of life than he would be in a tank full of plastic and ceramic. So hydroponics. How about fermentation? Both for booze and food. How much more can we bond with nature than to use bacterium to change the texture and flavor of a leaf and make a sauerkraut? And then consume that and have those organisms contribute to the biology within our own guts. Fermentation is an incredible way that we interact with natural systems. There was a time when people said that the human body was more bacteria than human. It turned out that had been overplayed a little bit. That we're not it's not quite true. It's not quite true. But we are about 50% bacterium. 50% of what we are is a living thing that's not us. We, you know, we become germophobic and we sanitize everything and spray everything with bleach. 50% of what you are is alive and it's not you. And if you take it away, you can't live. You can't live without it. You can't survive without it. Fermentation is a connection to that. It is a natural way that human beings have learned to preserve and increase the nourishment of food by using living organisms that offer themselves freely to that function. We don't have to go get a special bacteria to make a sauerkraut. If we take cabbage that was grown in a garden and add salt in the right ratio and cover it, It does it all by itself. That biology is already there, like it was designed to be there. You know, even though as brewers and mead makers and winemakers, we get specific yeast because we get better results. You know, read Sandor Katz. We can do completely wild fermentations. I've had some wild, open, fermented meads that are amazing. I've had some of them, eh, wah, wah, right? But some amazing ones. And the thing is, Once you get an amazing one, right in the bottom of that fermenter, there's a slurry. And we could pitch that into the next batch. And we've partnered with nature that way. To create something that can only exist that way is if we guide it. We don't make mead. We guide nutrient, yeast, and energy in the form of sugar. And the yeast makes mead. And we consume both the mead and the yeast. You know, unless we go and we kill it, like they do in commercial parks, no matter how clear that mead is, there's thousands or millions 
of yeast still in it. Many aren't even dead, they're just dormant. Fermentation's huge. Animal husbandry, which I've already talked about, is huge. When we take care of an animal, I don't care if it's a pet, livestock, doesn't matter. We often get back as much or more from that animal as they get from us. I mean, if you think about it, there's a reason there's such a thing as therapy dogs. And I know there are people that abuse that, like Miss, uh, what was it, Emotional Support Peacock Girl or something like that. But animals have this same desire to bond with us in, in many instances. I shared a little video clip yesterday on Facebook. It was a woman who's autistic that has panic attacks. And there was a golden retriever therapy dog she had. And as she was beginning to break down and have her panic attack, and, and understand, you know, you're not talking about somebody here that's, that's making things up. You're talking about somebody with a, you know, a, a genetically disposed medical condition that cannot help it. She's going to have a panic attack. And if you've ever dealt with somebody that has autism that has that particular, you know, challenge with it, you know, it's, it's difficult. How do, do I, when do I hug the person? When do I just let it go? Like, it's very difficult to know. Well, as she's beginning to break down, the dog keeps putting his paw on her leg. And at the exact right moment, so somehow this dog knows now is the time. He climbs up on her and basically makes her let him hug her. And you see this girl right at the edge of totally freaking losing it. Just begin to relax and hug this dog. How do you explain that? Other than there is a way in which we are designed to interact with nature and, and animals. You can say the dog is trained. But I can't train that dog to program a computer. You don't actually train a dog to do anything. You develop the animal's innate capabilities in a way in which it chooses to do what you want. To truly train something means that you leave the organism no choice. I can train a slime mold up the side of a tree. I can train a bonsai tree. It has no choice. I will tie it, I will prune it, whatever. A dog is something with a brain. We can condition it with a Pavlovian response. But in the end, it ultimately decides I've been asked to sit I'm either doing that or I'm not going to and sometimes the most well behaved dog will disobey and you might find out it was for your own benefit I remember one time my son's dog Blackie kept trying to dig into the kid's backpack and this dog was well behaved I could tell this dog sit and if I forgot I come back like 10 minutes later oh dude you can go like he would just be sitting like okay I don't get to Man, he wouldn't let it go. He wouldn't let it go. There's a freaking mouse in there. He knew there was a mouse in there. As far as he knew, that was like, there's something wrong. You guys got to know about this. I'm not going to sit. I'm not going to stop. You got it. He made that decision for himself. And there is this bond that we have with many animals, but especially canines. Animal husbandry is part of this natural way in which we are supposed to live. In the end, 
my question for you is, do we even have a choice if it is innate? If it is innately human to bond with nature and natural systems and seek out relationships with other forms of life, do we even really have a choice? Can, you know, kind of going on yesterday's thing, I think there are people that do try to completely wall themselves off from natural systems. But the quote we had yesterday by one of the pioneers in this, this biophilic philosophy, who's a guy named Stephen Kellert, a professor, he said, we will never be truly healthy, satisfied, or fulfilled if we live apart and alienated from the environment from which we evolved. I don't know that we really, if we want to be successful as a species or happy as an individual, both on the collective level and the individual level, both of which are very important to me, I don't know we have much of a choice. That doesn't mean everybody has to do it the same way. That doesn't mean everybody has to be a gardener or everybody has to be a farmer. But I think, in general, if we want to solve a lot of the problems that we have as a species and as a society, the answer is in more nature, not less. In the words of Jeff Lawton, all of the world's problems can be solved in a garden. I remember when he first said that, and some of... Uh, He didn't say that until after I started doing this show. There's no correlation there whatsoever. It just happened to be that way. And I already had a decent-sized audience. And I had already kind of introduced permaculture to the audience. And I had already introduced the audience to Jeff Lawton. So when he said this, and I played an audio clip of him, and he said that at the end, I got pushback that it was overly fanciful. That, I mean, there were certain things we just, you're not going to solve with a garden. But see, that was a narrow viewpoint of an incredibly broad philosophy. Every problem that needs solving in our world can be solved. We have to start there. There is no problem that doesn't have eventually a solution. All solutions are going to require a thought process, a contemplation. If they didn't They wouldn't be a problem. We would have just, oh, here's what you do. Offhand, boom, con, out of the way. You know, how we're going to breathe today is not a problem. You just do it. I know air pollution would have you, but in general, you get up, you breathe. You breathe while you sleep. It's not a problem. If you had to think about how to breathe once you turned uh, 12, and some people didn't do it, and we had people dropping over on their 12th year in one day, then we'd have a problem we'd have to think about. What do we do to teach people by the time they're 12 to breathe so they don't die? That would be a problem. All problems require consideration and thought to figure them out, to find the solution. There is no better place for thought than the garden. There's no place where we are more innately human, in my view, than when we're bonding with those natural systems as an active participant See, we can be in the forest and not be part of the forest. That's a very big part of that is how we decide to be ourselves, how where our mental state is, and what physically we're doing. But once you put your hands in soil, once you start looking at a plant and instead of going, oh, look, it's green, oh, that leaf is yellow, what do I do? All, you, you can't not be part of it. And when we are in that state, we are best suited to think about and reflect on 
how do I fix X, Y, and Z over here? Some of my best solutions have come while gardening or walking in the woods or battling a fish or drawing an arrow on a deer. In those moments, we can solve any problem. And I think as a species, if this is an eight, we don't really have much of a choice. One way or another, we're either going to use this aspect of what we are, or we're going to miss a great deal of the solutions that we should be seeking. With that, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Podcast. A little different. In some ways, a throwback to the early days, I guess, as well. And uh, if you want to support us in the work that we do, remember, you can become a member of the MSB, the Members Support Brigade. Now, if you do that, you'll get discounts on a whole bunch of really great companies. And a lot of the stuff is things you're going to buy anyway. So you'll get your money back over the year. I think almost anybody that tries gets their money back. Today, I want to talk to you about... Three really great vendors that we have that sell coffee. I love these guys, all of them, guys and gals. Then we have My Thai Coffee. They've been with us the longest about all the coffee vendors. Um, they grow and process coffee in Thailand, and all the proceeds go to support an orphanage in Thailand. And the children learn to grow coffee and develop the business in the orphanage. So it's self-sustaining instead of a professional begging organization, which unfortunately many charities have become. And they give you a discount on some amazing coffees. The butter rum out of them is my favorite. Next up, Food Forest Farms. Food Forest Farms does amazing air-roasted coffees. The guy doing it, Brian, has been on the show, been around in this community for a long time, been in the uh, coffee business and the cannabis industry forever, going back to medical cannabis and all. And not only do they do some really great coffees, they do CBD-infused coffee as well. The discount there, if you use CBD and like to use it in the form of a coffee, will more than cover your membership annually easily enough. And then our own Nicole Sauce from the Expert Council uh, with Holler Rose Coffee. And, you know, he's even done uh, some coffees that I have specked out some things for and all, uh, like Jack's Bourbon Blonde, which is completely sold out and you can't get any. But she has a discount as well. She has a Coffee of the Month Club, et cetera. So those are just, just if you drink coffee. Those are three companies that give you a great discount if you're an MSB member. So if you're not an MSB member and you've always thought, well, will I really be able to get my money back? Do you drink coffee? Because if you want to drink the best coffee, I mean, those are three of the best coffee brands I have ever tasted. I, I don't drink anything else. And I always feel like I'm cheating on one with the other. Like, today I drank Mai Tai coffee, and I feel like I was cheating on Nicole and Brian, right? You know, but I'm out of Brian's coffee. He has a new monsoon blend. It's awesome. Basically, it replicates the way coffee used to travel on ships where it was moistened and dried and moistened and dried multiple times. And it's really low acid. It's awesome. So I ran out of that, so I broke into one of my old stashes of Mai Tai, and I feel like I'm cheating on Nicole. But, you know, give you know, spread the business. But great discounts on something that most Americans consume and a pretty natural product at that, coffee beans. All right. The other way you can help is you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You're going to buy something online. You know, a lot of times you're going to use Amazon. If you're going to do that, go to tspaz.com first. And no matter what you buy, you help support us. The product I have for you today, though, is just one of those little awesome products. Um, it's everything bagel seasoning. 
by SPQR. Um, I love this stuff. And I don't know why, like I flaked on this or whatever, but you know, I always loved everything bagels. And I can't eat bagels very often, and now I can hardly ever eat them at all. But I love a bagel, and my favorite bagel is an everything bagel. And one day somebody said, uh, you know, you can just buy that seasoning in a jar. And I was like, if you've ever watched Big Bang Theory, there's a, a scene on there, and I have it linked in the write-up today, where the character Raj says to, to Penny when she tells him something happened, shut your ass. And that's how I felt, like, shut your ass. No, you can't. And I was like, well, you know, obviously this isn't something they store in a laboratory at NASA or something you have to break in to get the formula. It's not that complicated. It's sesame seeds, sea salt, uh, minced garlic, minced onion, black sesame seeds, and poppy seeds. That's That's the core of it. So then I started trying different varieties, and I found this SPQR stuff, and it was better than the Trader Joe's, which is what everybody said to buy. So it was better quality, I felt, than Trader Joe's, and it cost like 20% of what the Trader Joe's stuff does when you factor it in by the ounce. So it costs less, tastes better, you get more. So I went to this, and I have that in the write-up today, and I, I told you guys this week about the little Dash Mini waffle maker and how to make chaffles, and... I use this stuff on the chaffles, whipped cream, not whipped cream, come on, uh, cream cheese, and then sprinkle that on top of the chaffle. Well, my wife came up, and I've got a video out for you guys in the write-up today on a low-carb cracker. And basically, you take a low-carb, carb-balanced uh, you know, carb tortilla, and you cut it into squares, and then you paint it with a little egg wash so it'll stick, and you put this stuff on it. And they taste like, if you ever had bagel bites, that's kind of what they taste like. It's pretty damn awesome. And you know it's it's a it's it's a high fiber tortilla. That's how they get the net carbs low. So even with fiber being not counted, I don't think you can just pound a hundred of these things. But you know you can make one and you end up with ten crackers, and that's plenty. Great for cheese plates and all. And this stuff's just good on everything, any kind of bread or what have you. And it's awesome on a salad. So check it out again. It's called Everything Bagel Seasoning. There's lots of brands, but the SPQR brand is what I have found to be the best value for the buck. That's what I always try to bring on the show. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Uh, this week we had a lot of songs about kind of introspection and reflection. They fit in well. This one kind of fits in with today's show to a degree. It's Billy Joel, and it's called The Stranger. And it's kind of how you think you know who a person is, but people behave one way when they're around certain people and a different way when they're around others and somewhere between those or in one extreme or the other is the person they really are that's the take of the song fitting with today's theme I'd say often none of those versions of that person generally are who they really are I believe we've become so disconnected from what we really are that the masks we wear that this song is talking about is our attempt to fit in and get what we want or be what we think other people want us to be so that we can, you know, get the job or get the girl or make the money or keep the job or keep the girl or keep the money or have the friends or have the notoriety or what have you. Very few people are truly comfortable being who they are. And it often gets us into trouble. It's something I've tried really hard through my life to learn, and I've tried really hard to follow since I started this show. And I think it's helped me, because I'm sure I've lost people by being myself, but by trying to always be exactly who and what I am, a lot of you have been told, did you know that he said, and even if I, you didn't hear it, you're like, well, that, sound, 
that, that sounds like Jack, you know. And I, I, I really wish more people could do that. I really wish more people could live from the philosophy: if you don't like me, don't look at me. Because just as as our quote from yesterday, and we drug it back into today, said that we will never be truly happy, healthy, satisfied, or fulfilled if we live apart and alienated from the environment from which we evolved. I don't think we can be healthy, satisfied, and truly fulfilled if we live divorced from the reality of who we really are. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.